Good morning, good morning. Good morning, welcome to Super Bowl Sunday. And if you thought I wasn't gonna bring it up, then you picked the wrong pastor to preach on Super Bowl Sunday, I'll tell you that, that's for sure. So, just by the reaction, I can tell some of you know what's happening today. Here in Detroit, the Super Bowl has a little bit different meaning than it has probably ever in the Super Bowl era history. And that's the fact that our very own Matthew Stafford, who played 12 seasons in Detroit, got traded to the Los Angeles Rams in the off season and is now playing in the Super Bowl today. And this has brought up a lot of controversy. I can even feel it right now, okay? There's some people who are excited that Matthew Stafford is playing in the Super Bowl. Some people are going, I told you so. It wasn't his fault here in Detroit. Other people are saying, man, he left us. Why would you root for this guy? Some of you are like, why are we talking about this in church and rolling your eyes at me right now? So I get that. I get where you're coming from on all three fronts. So it's created a lot of debate here in the city of Detroit, so I thought I'd bring it up this morning. A lot of controversy. So no matter where you stand on this, there's one thing that's not debatable, and let's hang in there with me, because I have a point in all this. You'll see it at some point. There's no debate about one thing. This is the one thing there's no debate on. In the last 50 years of the NFL, The Detroit Lions are the worst franchise in the last 50 years, by the numbers. Clapping, all right. Let me just go through this a little bit. No team has been worse. This is our record in the last 50 years. 311, 465 and five. We've won 311 games. We've lost 465 games and we've tied five. Making us the worst team in the NFL in 50 years. Okay. Let's compare that to some other teams. Some good franchises out there in the NFL. Like the Pittsburgh Steelers, for example. The Pittsburgh Steelers have played in that same time frame, 50 years, they've played in 62 playoff games and won 36 of them. The Patriots played in 57 playoff games and won 36 of them. The San Francisco 49ers played in 51 playoff games and won 32 of them. And the Dallas Cowboys played in 53 playoff games and won 29 of them. We've played in 12 playoff games in 50 years and won one. And I remember that game. It was in 1992 when we had Barry Sanders. I was 11 years old. Little did I know I'd never see a playoff win again up until this point in my life. On top of that, in 2008, the Detroit Lions became the first team in NFL history to lose all 16 games in a single season. 
That's right, they went 4-0 in the preseason. Everyone had high hopes, and then they lost 16 games in the regular season, giving us the number one pick in the draft, and that's when we drafted Matthew Stafford. He came to Detroit, and he played 12 seasons in Detroit, 12 seasons. And in those 12 seasons, he only had four winning seasons, three playoff appearances, and zero playoff wins. So some people in Detroit, they used to blame Matt Stafford. It's his fault we're losing. You know, he's not that good. He can't win the big game. He can throw for a lot of yards, but he can't get it done. Other people said it's not his fault. It's the city of Detroit. They just don't win. We just don't win. And if we look at the stats, you can see that is a true. We don't win. In fact, he inherited an 0-16 team. Do you know how hard it is to go 0-16 as a professional football team? Most people think it's harder than winning the Super Bowl to go 0-16, like a professional team to not accidentally win one game in a season. So he never got much national recognition, but was deemed nationally an above-average starting quarterback who couldn't win the big game. So even though he didn't win in Detroit, he still set all the quarterback records in Detroit, and he has become, at least by the stats and the numbers, the number one QB who's ever played in Detroit Lions franchise history. Well, in the offseason, something happened here in Detroit last year in the offseason. We fired yet another head coach thinking it was his fault, probably, maybe, who knows. But Matthew had three different head coaches while he was here in Detroit and four different offensive coordinators. That means he was constantly learning a new system, trying to figure out new things, new schemes, different things. And in the off-season, after we fired our last coach, Matt Patricia, he said, enough's enough. I've spent 12 years in Detroit. We've changed coaches three times. This is going to be the fourth. It's getting late in my career. And he went to the Detroit Lions front office and he asked to be traded to a team that could actually compete and win games. And that put a bad taste in some people's mouth. I completely understood it personally. (laughs) I like Matt Stafford. Uh, I'm a fan. And not just because he's a good friend of mine. I think we have a picture here. Yeah, not just because he's a good friend of mine. Just kidding, I don't really know him. I played golf with him once. (laughs) But he went and he asked for a trade. So in the off-season, there were a lot of teams interested in Matthew Stafford. But the team that was most interested was the Los Los Angeles Rams. And they offered us a deal for Matt Stafford that pretty much the Detroit Lions could not turn down. They offered us their number one draft pick quarterback, Jared Goff, who was taken number one overall a few years earlier. They gave us Jared Goff for Matt Stafford, plus two first round picks and a third round pick. That's how highly they thought of Matthew Stafford. And some people thought they gave up way too much. Other people said, well, if it leads them to the Super Bowl, it was worth it. So while this year the Lions went 3-13-1, that's right, we won three games, lost 13, and had one tie with Jared Goff, the Los Angeles Rams went 12-1. 
and five with new quarterback Matt Stafford, and they won their division, won not one, not two, but three playoff games. That's two more than the Lions have won in the last 50 years, by the way. Matthew won three, including a big victory against the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Tom Brady, in the second week of the playoffs. And now he brought his team to the Super Bowl, which is being played today. The question is, what happened? Was it Matt Stafford's fault that we lost? Is he that good and just needed a better coach and a better culture? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. What I know is this. The reason I actually like Matt Stafford, I think he's a stand-up guy. He's a good guy. And the reason I'm pulling for him today is because he remained faithful here despite all the adversity he went through. Now, we could say, well, did he really face much adversity here? I mean, we paid him $200 million to quarterback the Lions for 12 years. But you know how these guys are. They're super competitive. And for 12 years, he was part of a losing organization, a losing culture. He was part of negativity, people second-guessing his ability to play football. And I'm telling you, after loss, after loss, after loss, after loss here in Detroit, I would think that it would get hard for a player of his caliber not to start to doubt himself. Maybe it is me. Maybe these people are right. Maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I don't deserve what I'm getting paid to play this game. Maybe I didn't deserve to be the number one draft pick. And he faced 12 years of a losing culture, of trying to keep his team pumped up. I mean, think about that. You lose, you lose, you lose, and every day you come to work and you remain faithful. And what I love about him is all of his teammates admired him. All his teammates said, this is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. He works hard. He gets up before anyone else does in the morning. He's here, first one to, to get here, last one to leave. And he's constantly positive and constantly believes we can turn this thing around. So in 12 years of adversity, losing, being ridiculed, criticized, he remained faithful. And now, what happens is he gets to play in a Super Bowl. I like stories like that personally because they give me hope. They give me hope about all kinds of things in life. That even though we go through some difficult times sometimes, even though we can be years and years of experiencing the same thing over and over again and wondering, God, when is it my time? When's it going to be my turn? When are you going to turn things around for me? When am I going to be, do something of significance with my life? When am I going to stop suffering? When is the pain going to end? When is the loss going to actually feel? Am I going to be okay with it? These are questions we all ask ourselves all the time. 
And what I love is I love the fact that if we are faithful in the little things in life, if we're faithful in our walk with God, even though we face trials, we face tribulations, we face tough times, God's got a huge blessing in store for us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is we're talking about, we're in a series called Letters from Jesus, and we're talking about the seven letters that were addressed in the book of Revelation to the seven churches that were going on in Rome at the time. And today we're going to talk about the church of Philadelphia. Everyone say that, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, not, nothing to do there. This is the church of Philadelphia. This is a city that is located in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Philadelphia was founded later than most of the other cities in Asia Minor. And Philadelphia means brotherly love. That's right. It means brotherly love. Do you know why this city was named Philadelphia? little fun fact. This city was named Philadelphia in honor of Attalus II because of his loyalty to his older brother, Eumenes II, king of Lydia. So he was so loyal to his older brother, his brother named this city, brotherly love, after him. Isn't that sweet? I should do that for my brother. Although... I'll never be able to name a city. Maybe I'll name my dog after him or something. (laughs) My next dog. Philadelphia or Tony or something. You know, we'll see. But this was an important city. And if you can see it on the map, I like to look at things on the map. Just because it gives you an idea of what we're looking at. Where Philadelphia is in relation to the other cities that we've been talking about. Other churches. And so you have churches in each of these areas. And then you got that little island of Patmos out there. You see it? That's where John was getting a revelation and writing these letters to these seven churches. I think it's interesting because you can almost see them in the distance. You know, I wonder if he could hear him or see different things that were happening in these cities while he was stranded. So I want to start reading about this church in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7. This is what the Word of God says. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And we know that when it says to the angel, it means to the pastor, to the leader of the church in Philadelphia, write this. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have very little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This church is commended for being faithful. One of the only churches that is actually commended here in the book of Revelation, but it's commended for being faithful despite what's going on. And it begins with an announcement from Christ that says, he has the key of David and what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. This is a statement similar to what we see in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 22, 20 through 22 says these words. In that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. 
I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Very similar language that's given to us in the book of Revelation. Where Eliakim was given the key to the house of David, which allowed him to determine who could come, who could go. He had the authority. A key in the word of God is a symbol of authority. He had the authority over the whole house of David to determine who could come, who could go. He had the key. And so I think this is important for two reasons. Number one, Christ's statement that he had the key of David reveals this, that Jesus was from the throne of his father, David. Why is that important? Because in Luke 1.32, the word of God says, he will be great, he'll be called the son of the most high, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So this is just reiterating that the words right here are from the Messiah, the one who's from the line in the lineage of David. Second, it says, I think it's important because it shows us that Christ has the authority to open and close doors for the benefit of the congregation of Philadelphia. He holds the power. He holds the key. And when Christ opened up doors for them, no one would be able to shut up. And as far as how Christ uses authority, he tells the church of Philadelphia that he knows their works. And he set before them an open door. Listen, I'm going to use you. And it's significant because he calls this church, he says, you have little strength. Now, this wasn't an insult to the church of Philadelphia. What he was saying is this, you're a little church, but you have great influence. And because you've remained faithful, even though you're small, I am going to open up the door for you. I'm going to open up the door for my gospel to be preached through you. I'm going to open up the door of blessing for you. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about this church. It's a significant church, even though it was small. And God said, I will open up doors. And this was important because this church was afraid. They were fearful that because of all the persecution that was going on around them, in Rome, and with all the other churches, they were fearful that someone was going to come in and literally shut the doors of their church. That the Roman soldiers could come in at any moment, shut the door, persecute all of them, even kill them all. And so right here, God's kind of giving them some reassurance. Listen, that's not going to happen. I'm going to keep this door open for you. Verse 9 goes on to say this, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I loved you, that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan. I was studying this on Tuesday, and I must have looked pretty intense because my wife came in Tuesday evening and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just studying about the synagogue of Satan. 
It's very interesting. She's like, oh, I'll, I'll leave you to it. <laughs> the synagogue of Satan, when you do the research on this, what this represents is it represents a group of Jewish leaders who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. And this group would stir up trouble for every believer, anyone who believed in Christ. So this group would put you out of the synagogue. Because you have to remember something. When Christianity first was, was born, when Jesus first started coming and talking, what did he do? He preached in Jewish synagogues. Christianity was never meant to be a new religion. People say this sometimes, like, oh, Judaism's older than Christianity. Well, Christianity was meant to be the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy for the Jewish religion. And so at the time, it was just considered a sect of Judaism. And so there were people, there were Jews who believed that Jesus was the son of God and some that did not. And so as this sect began to grow and began to grow, the Jewish leaders who actually put Jesus on the cross did not want their people believing he was the Son of God. So they started excommunicating anyone who claimed to be a Christian, anyone who believed in this Messiah. They started excommunicating them from the synagogue. I mean, the ones who persecuted the church most were the Jewish leaders of the day. In fact, they had a relationship with Rome. They had worked out this peace with Rome that allowed them to bypass certain standards that Rome had for all their people. Rome wouldn't make them worship the emperor. Rome wouldn't make them worship per, uh, pagan gods. Rome wouldn't make them participate in the rituals that went against their faith. They had this deal worked out with Rome. So when the Jewish people went to Rome and asked them for something, Rome wanted to keep the peace. This is why they put Jesus on the cross. This is why they put Paul in prison. They did it to appease the Jewish leaders of the day. But as Christianity spread and the Jewish leaders said they are not part of our thing, all of a sudden the Romans said, well, if they're not part of Judaism, then they have to follow our rules. They got to worship the empire, they got to emperor, they got to worship, take part in these rituals that we have going on. And when the Christians said no, that's when persecution broke out even more. So this isn't like an anti-Semitic thing that is in the book of Revelation. It's talking about the religion, Judaism and Christianity. And people who claim to be God's people, but they rejected his son Jesus Christ. That's what this portion is talking about. And they were referred to as the synagogue of Satan because they literally created so much pain, so much turmoil, so much heartache for the Christians of that day. Verse 10 goes on to say this, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is where this portion of scripture gets a little controversial. 
Some people wonder what this is referring to when, G- when Jesus says, you have kept my command to endure, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. I'm going to keep you, Church of Philadelphia, from this trial. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So some people believe that this is literal to the Church of Philadelphia. Some people believe that in that day, during that time, that there was so much persecution by Rome in the world that God kept Philadelphia set apart and they didn't face as much trial and persecution when it got really bad as the other six churches did. That's some people's interpretation. Most people believe that's not what this is talking about. Most scholars believe that this is a a reference to the end time. That because Jesus says, I'm coming soon, hey, be faithful, endure patiently. This is a reference to, hey, I'm going to protect you during the end. You won't have to face the trials that other people have to face. This is where you get into this whole pre, mid, post, trib, revelation stuff, which to be honest with you, if I'm honest, I don't know. I don't know. No one knows. We have strong opinions. In fact, people will come up to me after this message probably and be like, oh, I I got that figured out. I'll tell you exactly what that means. I've studied it. And then someone else will say, I know what that means. And they'll give me a completely different perspective and say, this is what it means. So, so many people, this is a controversial thing. So many people have different ideas and different thoughts. Well, if, God, if Jesus was talking specifically to the church of Philadelphia, they're all dead and gone, and Jesus didn't come back. So what does that mean? Which makes people believe that we're talking about the end of the age. But if we're talking about the end of the age, the church of Philadelphia no longer exists. So then what that means is this is not just specifically for the church of Philadelphia, but this is for the church today, which is what I personally believe. I believe that all letters to the seven churches today, all of these letters that we've been reading about apply to the church today. That there's seven different aspects we all need to hear. That each church, the entire church as a large, we've all done partly what each of these churches have done sometime in our walk with God. We've forsaken our first love. We have been guilty of meshing in with the world more than being set apart. We have at times lost our passion to seek God. We've let other ideas come in to make us question the Bible. These are things that we've all done, but a lot of us have still remained faithful. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of storms and persecution and heartache and pain. So my personal belief is that each of these letters, although they were written, had specific meaning for the churches back in the day, and those churches received from those and were convicted and inspired to move forward, that Jesus was preparing his future church to say, listen, before the end comes, here's some things that I would like to see you do. Here's some ideas I have for you. 
And so that's how I interpret it. Once again, it's my humble opinion. Most people say an opinion's worth you pay for it. You didn't pay anything for it, so hey, take it for, for what, you, what you want. But that's what I personally believe. But just because God promised to keep this church from the hour of persecution because of their faithfulness, he still encouraged them to endure and keep going. He didn't give them a pat on the back and say, okay, you've been faithful, you're good, you can coast now. No, he wanted them to endure to the end. Hebrews 12, one through three says it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Throw off the things that are in your, and finish your race. Even though you've been faithful, continue to run to win. You know, I love that the Olympics are on right now. There's something about the Olympics, the passion that the people who are participating in the Olympics have. They've given their life to something. They've given up normal living. They've given up normal ways of life and they've worked hard to compete, to win and be the best in the world at something. And each one of them competes like they got a chance to win that gold medal. That's their goal. And they work for it and they are faithful. Every day they get up, they practice even when they don't feel like it, even when they don't want to. They say, you know what? I'm going to run my race. This is what my life is about. And that's what God's calling his church to do in this season of life. He was calling the church of Philadelphia to do it, and he's calling us to do it. To run our race, to not give up in this season. Even though it, it gets hard, even though we experience painful things and trials, even though we're getting persecuted, even though the world's changing and the culture's changing, stay faithful. Stay faithful to my word. Read it, know it, get it in you. Stay faithful to seeking my face. That's what these letters are about. Remember your first love, it's me. Remember to, that everything I did for you was to have relationship with you so I could lead you, so I could guide you by my spirit. All of it. Stay faithful. Keep going. Keep running the race, even though it's hard, even though you don't understand things at times, even though everything doesn't always make sense. Keep running. Keep pursuing me diligently, and I will bless you. I will keep you. 
I will open up doors for you that no one else can open. And I will shut doors that no one else can shut. I will got you. If you're faithful, I'm going to keep being faithful to you. Verse 12 goes on to say this. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit say. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple. The one who's faithful, the one who keeps going, I will make them a pillar. Now the word temple here in the Greek is the word nail. And it refers to the inner sanctuary. It actually refers to the holy of holies in the temple. It's used to describe the believer's final state in heaven, in the presence of God, in the new Jerusalem, which is a reference to heaven when heaven collides with earth and creates this beautiful, amazing place that those who know Jesus will spend eternity in. In the presence of God. You know, when you look back at the temple, it was first the tabernacle of Moses and then later the temple that Solomon built. There was a spot called the Holy of holies. In that place, it was the most sacred place in the entire complex. There was only one person who was able to go into the Holy of Holies and only one day a year could. That was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Could walk in there into the presence of God. It was pretty special. It's where the Ark of the Covenant reside, the crowned mercy seat. It was a place that only one person could experience. Can you imagine what that priest, that high priest must have thought going into that day? I'm about to do something that no one else on the earth has the ability to do. I'm about to go experience the presence of pretty powerful actually was a little bit fearful because some people went in and didn't come out but now what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia and to us stay faithful because there is a day coming when you finish your race that you will stand in the most holy place. You will stand in the presence of God and it will be worth it. You won't stand there and have any questions. You won't stand there and go, well, you know, the culture said this and I wasn't sure. You won't stand there and question the Bible. You won't stand there and wonder if you made the right choice living for Christ on this earth. You will stand there in awe the presence of God and you will be so glad that you remain faithful on this earth 
you will be so glad that you did. It's worth it. And that's why this message that was written 2,000 years to the Church of Philadelphia still has relevance today. Because so many of us face storms. We face pain and trials and tribulation. And a lot of us want to quit and a lot of us have questions and we say, why God, why would you allow this to happen to me? If you're good, if you're loving, if, if you're true, why do all these things on earth happen? And he's saying, be faithful. One day you'll have all the answers. One day you'll stand in my presence without any questions. And you'll be in awe and so glad that you remain faithful even in the storms of life. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word that was written so long ago but has so much significance to us today. God, it's hard out there. It's hard in this world. There's so many temptations and trials and cultural things around us. It's hard to remain true and faithful and steadfast. But I thank you for your promise, God, that as your church tries to remain faithful and seek your face and make new dedication to know you more this year, that you would in turn open up doors that have been shut for a long time, that you would shut doors that need to be shut, that you would redeem those who feel unredeemable. And that you would lead us and guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.